Amen. Amen. Um, I love that story. Um, I, I, I've been privileged to, and I know many of you here have been privileged to interact with her and with Max and hear their stories over the last, gosh, it's been like four or five years. And I, I just love how in the midst of something that to the world and even to us, there's so much sorrow and grief in how the Lord is working out his purposes and how life is being found in those moments. And it just fills me with such joy that Corinne just wants to come tell her story for all of us. And so I praise the Lord for that, um, and I hope you are blessed by that. And it's a perfect starting point for today, because today we are about to talk about the book of First John. Um, we are kicking off this week our fall sermon alignment series called From the Beginning, um, and we're going to be in the book of First John. If you've got a Bible, you might as well get it out and open up to First John. Um, we're going to look at the first four verses in a little bit, but before we jump into that, I want to say a few things about this letter that I think are very important and about what we're doing. Um, the first thing is I take such joy um, in our fall sermon alignment series. One of the things I get to do is I get to write the curriculum. Um, and so if you get a booklet out there, if you're in a small group, um, I get to do that. And it's not just me. Um, I pick Rich and Joseph and Tim's brains. Um, I have Caleb Brandt and Brandon Cassio who have been meeting with me every week the whole time we've been working through this series. Um, and uh, it's, it's just a joy. I, I've been thinking about where we're headed for like six or seven months now. And so I'm so excited that we're hitting that point. Um, and for those of you that did the Revelation series, um, this curriculum looks nothing like that. So don't be afraid. Um, <laughs> I need to say that up front. Um, speaking of Revelation... John, who wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and John also wrote Revelation. So we're, we're in the same author we looked at earlier who wrote about the end times. Now we're in a book where he's talking about what Christian community looks like. John was one of the original 12 disciples, and he is unique among those disciples. He's one of the very first disciples. He and his brother and Peter were the three disciples Jesus was closest to. They saw the transfiguration. They saw some miracles that none of the other disciples saw. Um, John is the unique disciple who, the night that be Jesus was betrayed, the night where he washed the disciples' feet, where he broke bread and said, this is my body broken for you, gave them the cup and said, this is my blood spilled for you. On that night, John was the only follower of Jesus among his 12 disciples. John and the women, we need to mention that the women stayed faithful, but John was the only of those 12 who witnessed the crucifixion. He was also the first one to the tomb when the disciples heard the tomb was empty, although Peter ran past him and ran in. Um, and, and John was witness to the resurrection. At the time of writing 1 John, we can't be sure, but it seems exceedingly likely that he is the last living apostle. If he's not the last living apostle, there's maybe one other. I don't know. I think it's very reasonable to say this book was written close to 90 AD, um, and he would be the last living earthly follower, one of the 11 disciples of Jesus after Judas betrayed him, but he was the last one left. And he is writing this letter to prepare future generations in the church to stay strong, to keep following. And we know his letter worked, and we know the Spirit moved through what he did, because we follow today because that first generation of believers passed it down, and passed it down, and passed it down. And we're 
1,900, 2,000 years later, still following, still calling to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, still living in the same life, light, and love that John puts forward in the letter of 1 John. So I'm very excited to dig in. I'm very excited for what the Lord is going to do at our church this fall, and I'm going to open us in prayer, and then we will dig in, because we've got a lot to cover today. Lord, you are so good. You who chose us are so good. You love us. You created us in your image, and when we defiled that image, you planned and prepared a way for us back to you. You sent your son, Jesus, that he would die in our place and that he would resurrect, that that our sins would be covered and that we would know that you have the power to defeat death. And you did this that we might have life and have it with you now and for all eternity. I pray as we start this series that we understand the gravity and the weight of the words from the beginning. And as we look at those now, I pray that you would help open our eyes to just how amazing your plan for us was and how even after we, in our sin, we fall away, your desire is that we would have the relationship with you and the relationships with each other that we were created to have from the beginning. I pray right now, Lord, um, I pray that you would speak through me. I pray that these would be your words, not mine. I pray for the work you've been doing in my heart that I'd be able to communicate it well. And I pray for the next 10 weeks, what you're going to do at our church. I thank you for how good you are, and I am just excited to see the way you move in our midst this fall. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So um, we're going to read 1 John 1, 1 through 4 right now. And I need to tell you, in the Greek, it's all one super long sentence. Um, and, And when we look at this in English... If you're like a a grammar person who has to correct things when you see them, you know, like when you see an online comment, you're like, well, actually, that's not the right version of there or whatever. Um, These can seem kind of atrocious, but in the Greek, it would not seem nearly so atrocious, okay? Um, And some of you are like, you can't call the Bible atrocious, and you can't, okay? So, um, So let's read. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So this is the purpose statement of the book. And if we look back and start over, um, I want to draw your attention to a few things. The first thing is, is that when John writes this letter, we're going to see throughout the letter, we're going to see our senses, or his senses and the other apostles' senses were engaged, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. Now, the reason this is important is because as John begins, first off, he doesn't say I, even though he's probably like the last of the apostles left alive. He says we, tying the authority not to himself, but to the followers of Jesus and what they witnessed. And when he talks about what they witnessed, he he makes sure it's clear this wasn't some vision, this wasn't some dream, 
We touched, we felt, we saw with our eyes. This wasn't we all had a dream and they were similar and we said, let's start a religion. This was something physically that took place in human history. And we might be tempted at this moment to say, okay, from the beginning, from the moment Jesus was resurrected, and that would be wrong. That's not what the beginning we're talking about is. We might be tempted to say from the moment Jesus ascended, and that would be wrong. We might say from the moment the Holy Spirit came down. We might say from the moment Jesus died on the cross, from the moment Jesus was born, from the moment Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. We might say any of those things. But when it says that which is from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen, which we have touched, which we have physically engaged with, that which was from the beginning is referring to that which is from the beginning of time and before time existed in the first place. If we go to John's other letters in the book of John, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That is referring to Jesus who was with God. John's opening claim is that God the Father and God the Son, before creation existed, were. And if we read elsewhere, we will find it's not just Father and Son, but also the Holy Spirit. We get to that. But John doesn't start his books with that because it gets so confusing already because we don't understand the Trinity. It's far past our understanding. And what John is saying is what is far past our understanding, what created all of anything we can imagine, anything we've touched, seen, heard, anything like that, what created all of that came in such a way and was placed in human history in such a way that we heard, we saw, we looked upon, we touched with our hands, life. Life, because that's the big idea we're going to see here concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, the eternal life. In other letters, or in the book of John even, John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It talks about the word that was life and light. Um, and life is a thing, you know, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. Jesus is very focused on life. And so for us to understand John, we need to start to decode these things. And so now we know from the beginning takes us all the way back to creation. The next thing we need to figure out is life. What is life? And there are many simple answers to this. Well, I'm alive. Um, having a life means you have a social life or something. Um, life could be, we look at other planets and say, well, there might be bacteria there or water there. A planet could sustain life. That's, that's how we think of life. We think of life as being alive. But that's not what the Bible thinks of. For us to understand what the Bible is referring to, and John is being very intentional here when he talks about the word of life, life and eternal life, life made manifest. He's trying to give us a picture that goes back to the very beginning of God's word. So I have a question for you all, and you don't have to answer it out loud, except if you're at home, then you do. Um, what are the most important elements of the story of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 and 3? Now, I ask this question. Hopefully, you're picturing some things in your mind right now. Um, Lucy loves reading books, and every night we read two books, and every day when I'm home, she'll go grab other books, and we have a whole bunch of story Bibles. Um, and I'm okay with these story Bibles right now um, because she doesn't understand the stories in them yet. When she's old enough to understand the stories in them, we'll probably get rid of all of them. And that's a different conversation, but I'm ornery enough to say children's story Bibles don't present the Bible very well. Okay, the Garden of Eden in most children's books, and honestly, I bet most of you are going to say, yeah, this, these are all the things. So there's a man and a woman, right? When we think of the Garden of Eden, there's a man and a woman. And then there are strategically placed animals and plants. 
This is because they are naked. And so um, in some of Lucy's books, they're behind bushes. In other books, they're like holding animals at the perfect angles to cover everything. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? And this is important. I'm not just being ornery right now. Um, finally, there are animals that are usually found in a jungle setting. This is me being ornery because I think it's silly that if you just look at every children's book, it's like they have giraffes, tigers, lions, um, even though the Jewish people would have been focused on sheep and bulls and lambs. and that, like they, We don't think about that. Noah's Ark had seven of all the clean animals, but we focus on the giraffes. Um, the Garden of Eden, also, if you see it in a children's book or even like a painting, you see a central tree with fruit right? That's what we see. And usually on that tree, there's a snake or a serpent hanging from the fruit tree, right? This, this is like a, a good old starter pack of what you would expect to see on a Garden of Eden image. And there are some problems with this. There are things omitted from Eden, and it's why we don't understand the word life when we come across it in the New Testament. The first one, and it's only the first one, God Oh, we're missing God from our picture of the place where God set humanity and had relationship with them at the start of creation. And you may say, well, how would we illustrate God? Somehow, maybe it's like a, a beam of light. Maybe it's like a bright, white, dazzling figure. Maybe it's, I don't know, you, you can figure it out, artists. I'm not an artist. Um, but the point is, is the most important element of the garden. God places humanity there, and he gives them access to the garden. And he gives them a job in the garden, and they're made in his image, and he gives one command to Adam, which is don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree with the snake on it. For if you do this, you will surely die. And then God puts Adam in a deep sleep and makes Eve from his rib, and then they come together, and they are together. And what are they? Well, they're naked and unashamed. And now, okay, okay, let's... For a moment, you're going to be like, well, Matt, do you really want to open children's books with Lucy and see nudity? And the answer is no, I don't. But I want to draw your attention to something. We cannot show paradise in how we illustrate what humanity was supposed to be because of how fallen we are. If, if I can say really boldly, there are two commands in the Bible that are the two most important commands. What are they? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, in the garden, they were in perfect relationship with God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And they were in perfect relationship with each other. Love your neighbor as yourself. From the beginning, humanity was created to live out those commands. Those weren't commands added later, after the fall. It's just after the fall, they had to be stated. There's one more thing missing. And this is how I know we don't know the story of the Garden of Eden very well. The tree of life. It's missing in just about every image. And you may say, well, the, the other tree is the one that gets all the plot points, to which I say, nah. Because after the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is used in Genesis 3, it does not come up again. But the tree of life does. The tree of life is both a literal tree and it's symbolic in the idea of this is where humanity experienced life of God. They experienced his goodness, his sustenance. They experienced all of who he was when they had access to this tree. Someday in the book of Revelation, it talks about how we will have access to this tree again if we are followers of Jesus. It's on the final page of the Bible. And when we miss this tree, we miss out on some really big ideas in the Bible. 
in the tabernacle and in the temple, the two Jewish places where the presence of God was amongst the people. We're, we're, we're told that God was in the midst of the people when they built the tabernacle and when they built the temple. The tree of life is said to be in the midst of the garden. The idea is tied together in the tabernacle and temple. In the holiest place in Jewish scripture in the Old Testament, there was always something symbolic of the tree of life. It was intentional. The tree of life mattered. Now, if, if, I, if I can take this one step further, um, I, I recently heard, and I've heard this before, and I've heard it from different people, but I recently heard on a podcast, I heard a pastor talk about when Adam and Eve sinned, and they were removed from the garden. God had said, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. And I heard a pastor say, well, when he moved them out, he changed his mind, and he didn't kill them. And it really bothered me. And the reason it bothered me is because the second they had no access to the tree of life, the second their relationship with God was broken, the second their relationships with each other were severed and needed covering and needed shame, the second all of those things happened, death. We don't think this way because we we like to think, well, we're still alive and and it's all about when we die, where are we going to go? But the the fact is, is the, the Bible is very clear that outside of God, we have no life. In Ephesians, it says, we were once dead in our transgressions and in the way that we walked. We're, we're called walking corpses in the Bible if we don't have God because the life that God provides is the only life worth having. We were created by him to love him and be in relationship with him and be in right relationship with each other as well. And when we have anything less, we don't have life. In the New Testament, there's a few places where God talks about, and in Revelation, it talks about a second death. And the reality is that for anyone who never has access to the tree of life, the second death is when we die in this life and we we no longer have access. It's for people who never give their life to Christ. The second death is when they die, they're severed forever. The first death happened in the garden. And every human... If you're here today, every human at some point was dead in their transgressions or is currently dead in their transgressions. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have no access to life. And so when we read John talk about life, we need to understand that's what he's talking about. Life in John's writing is seen as living in God's creation, following his purposes for us, and being in right relationship with God and each other. And you may say, well, well, he's talking about the word of life, that which is from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have heard. That's, that's Jesus. That's not us. And you're right. You're right. But it could be us if we live the way Jesus has called us to live. And Jesus has enabled us to have access to this life. When we look at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22, it's so important that we note it says, this is, the angel showed me, John, the author of what we're reading, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now I have no idea to do with all the symbolism there, but what I want to draw your attention to is at the beginning of the Bible and at the end of the Bible, The purpose was for humanity to live in right relationship with God, right relationship with each other, with access to the tree of life, to to God's presence, access to sustenance from the Lord, access to life with the Lord. That is a theme throughout the Bible that we had no access to from the moment of the fall. Life in John's writing is seen as living in God's creation, following his purposes for us, and being in right relationship with God and each other. Um. 
I want to draw attention for a moment to an artist at our church, Linda W., um, who she put, if you, it, it's out on our chalkboard right now, she drew a tree um, with, um, there's butterflies on it and stuff, but um, uh, alongside it, she, this tree image in her mind came from, I didn't talk to her about this, so, but I know because I can see it, but I should have asked her, but um, she did Psalm 1, verse 3. And it says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And in all that he, and his leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. I have not read cursive in a long time. Um, but, but I bring this up because one of the themes in the Bible is, is not only is God, or not only do we lose access to the tree of life, but when we start to live the way we're supposed to live, we start to look like little mini trees of life. In fact, when Jesus walked on this earth in perfect relationship with God and with perfect relationship with other, what was he? He was kind of like a walking tree of life. And that sounds very weird to us, like he's not like an ent from the Lord of the Rings. But, but the, the idea is, when Jesus came, what did he do? Did he, did he kill a whole bunch of people who deserve death because of our sin? No, he lifted them up, he healed them, he provided them with life and a source of life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He offered life to those who would take it. And, and so we need to recognize that, that this theme is all over the Bible, Life in John's writing is seen as living in God's creation, following his purposes for us, and being in right relationship with God and with each other. I'm going to get really nerdy for a moment, and this is one of my favorite little Bible moments. Um, so after Jesus died on the cross in the book of John, the first per- person to witness him in bodily form, resurrected, is Mary Magdalene. And she is at the tomb, and she's weeping. And some angels ask her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, and for our purposes today, it does not matter what she said, but I just want to, do you see that? Do you see that? Adam and Eve in the garden, taken out. John, at the resurrection of Jesus, sees that there's access back in. And he wants to draw our attention. And you may say, well, that's just Mary, like, not knowing who he was. But, but John is very careful and precise in his words. He would not put that in if he did not mean it and did not want us to be thinking about it. And it's to draw our attention to the fact that there is access to life once again. Life in John's writing is seen as living in God's creation, following his purposes for us, and being in right relationship with God and with each other. When we did our Revelation series, a whole bunch of people that I talked to talked about the idea of, well, this is all about we get to go to heaven, and when we go to heaven, we have this. Um, And uh, if you think that, it's true, but if you think that's only when we get to have life, you have not read the words of Jesus, because Jesus cares very much about the way we live now, He did not say, I come so that when you die, you can have life. He came talking about the here and now and the fact that we can have life in this life the way we were created to, even though we live in a fallen world. I'll give you two examples. I could give many more. But in John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes, him who has sent me has eternal life. Has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. These are both things in the immediate. In 1 John 3.14, we'll look at this in a few weeks, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 
We know that we have passed out of death. We have life now. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have given your life to him, if he is your Lord and Savior, if you believe he rose from the dead and confess him as your Lord, you have life right now. And and it's wonderful, but it's so hard for us to imagine, right? Because when I say this, the, the first thought is, well, it doesn't always feel like that. But life in John's writing is seen as living in God's creation, which we're, we're doing, following his purposes for us, which we should be doing if we're Christians and we have the Holy Spirit to enable us to do that, and being in right relationship with God, which if we believe in what Jesus did, if we accept him as our Lord and Savior, if we, if we recognize him for who he is, we have right relationship with God, not because of what we did, but because his blood covers us. If we, if we, if we truly believe that, we can also have right relationship with each other. And some of you may say that last one's the most impossible one to think right now. Um, and man, it seems really hard to think that, but that's one of the most important parts of this as we're going to see all through the book of John. I want to make sure I don't skip past this too quickly. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Bible puts forward that you are dead in your transgression. And it's not just you, it's every human. If you're, if you're out there and you're online and you're feeling judged, know that every human outside of a right relationship with Jesus is dead. Every human was born dead. Every human will die dead without the intervention of Jesus Christ. And I, I say this because I just want to make sure you know that you have access to life. It's not something that is only for people who are good enough because no one, not one, is good enough at all for the life that we should have because of our sin. Because of our sin, we cannot have it. But because of what Jesus did, we are offered something that we have no right to. It's so important that we see this and understand the weight of this. If you're someone out there today and you say, I want that life, don't leave today without talking to me. Don't leave today without talking to an online host. Don't, don't walk away from this because it's there for you. And that's the purpose of our church. That's the purpose of everything John is writing in 1 John is that people would come to know that life, have that life, experience that life, and help others experience it the same way. So this leads us to a very good question. How do we experience the life God created us to know? Because I bet many of you, and some of you who have been in the church a long time, are like, I know I'm supposed to have this life, but I do not know how to really experience it. It's not easy to experience this kind of life. It does take work, but the kind of work it takes is is understanding the work that's already been done. My heart breaks all the time when I talk to Christians who are talking about the things that threaten us or the things that we need to overcome and all these different things that the world is doing because when they talk about that, what they don't understand is if we have life in Christ, if we have the life God offers through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no threat. There is nothing. When, when it says, and um, we're going to get to this, um, I'm spoiling like eight weeks from now. When it says perfect love casts out all fear, that's a really famous Bible verse. Um, it's talking about fear of judgment that we could ever lose the life God has given us. It's not talking about every fear. It's talking about the only fear that matters is will we be accepted by God? And we have assurance if we trust in Jesus that we have that life. And if we have that life, nothing will take it away. The love of God will not be absent from us. And so the question is, how do we experience what we've already been given? 
that is so hard to believe we have. To do that, we're going to reread this passage. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. When John says, so that our joy may be complete, he's talking about a very specific thing. He's saying Jesus was the word became flesh, dwelt among us. He was the word of life. He was with us. We saw him. We heard him. We felt him. We touched him. We, all of these things. And our desire to make our joy complete is that the same fellowship that we have with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, that we would have that too. And John wrote this to an audience as he's probably, again, the last living apostle writing to an audience saying, even as I pass on, I hope you will have this fellowship. And I hope you will pass it down, and you will pass it down, and you will pass it down. And they did. And that's why we follow today. But this idea of fellowship, that we would have that, that the joy of the apostles would be made complete, this idea of fellowship brings with it a very different idea than what I think a lot of us think of when we think of fellowship. Because when we think of fellowship, we, and this is me, I, when I think of fellowship, I think of things like potlucks. Some of you may be familiar with potlucks. It's where you go and everybody brings a meal or brings like a a side dish and like that one person brings fried chicken and you try and make sure you're close enough in the line to where you get a piece of fried chicken, but you don't want to be the last person to get fried chicken or you get a wing. So you got to, yeah. And we think that that's fellowship or we think, oh, we're going out to lunch together. We think, oh, we're doing these things together. And, And that's like, that is fellowship. I don't want to diminish that that's fellowship, but that's surface fellowship based on the word being used here. Because in the Bible, there's a word behind this type of fellowship and the word is koinonia. If you are a small group leader, this is the time to internalize koinonia because you're going to have to read it in the leader guide this week to your group. Koinonia, koinonia. Um, And this type of fellowship was a fellowship that brought with it some very specific, distinctive things. It's a fellowship of close relationship. And close relationship has to be earned, right? That doesn't just come about. You don't just say, hey, let's have a close relationship. Right? No one's nodding, but maybe you all just can form them very quickly. I'm, I'm good at talking to people, but I cannot form close relationships very quickly. The next thing is it requires contribution. You have to be willing to give into it. You have to be willing to give of your time and of your talents. You have have to be willing to be a part of it. You can't just, well, I showed up for lunch with everyone. It'd be like showing up at a potluck and not bringing a side dish. So, but, but you have to contribute in to these close relationships. It also takes participation. And, and by participation, I mean you, you have to, when other people contribute, you have to be willing to participate with them. When someone else is sharing, you have to listen to what they're sharing. You have to be a part of what they're doing as well as you want them to be a part of what you're doing. It's, it's a close-knit relationship. And finally, it's a partnership. It requires a recognition that we have to do this together. 
It requires recognizing that the kind of community and the kind of fellowship we want to have is not a one and done. Um, If you look at the disciples, and we don't have much time for this, but if you look at the disciples, there was one named Matthew. um, He was a tax collector. And there was one named Simon the Zealot. And the zealots would kill any Jews they could who were working for the Roman government. And so two of the guys sitting around the Last Supper table, one wanted to kill the other. John, the guy who wrote this, called himself in the book of John the disciple whom Jesus loved. And in in the book of John, he talks pretty poorly of Peter. I I think that Peter was probably very okay with that. But the, the disciples jockeyed for position right up until the moment they received the Holy Spirit and saw the the death and resurrection of Jesus. Right up until then, they were all trying to figure out who's going to be Jesus' right-hand man. But then we look at what happened in the transformation, and they work together, and they work to share and spread the gospel. We don't see power struggles in the New Testament amongst the apostles. We do see sometimes where they correct and rebuke each other. Um, In Galatians, Paul rebukes Peter and says, you're doing it wrong. And then Peter says, you're right. They had a relationship where they were close enough to where they could challenge each other. They, they could live together in community. And they saw that what they were building, the fellowship they were a part of, was something far bigger than their own preferences and their own desires and their own, their own agenda. This is the fellowship we need to have. And this is not an easy fellowship. It's not a fellowship of I walked in the door and now I leave and I'll come back in a week. It's not a fellowship of I'll pray for you, but I'll never tell you what you need to pray for me about. It's not a fellowship of, well, I I lead and serve, but I never follow. It's a fellowship of a tight-knit community that's willing to dig in together, to willing to say what we struggle with, to be willing to, to live closely together in things that are just not comfortable. I want to tell you, if you, if you get the booklet, um, there's a bunch out there. If you get the booklet, um, the, the introduction, I spend a lot of time there confessing a sin. Um, I, I struggle a lot with thinking that my words up here on the stage are the most important things. And if I say the right things, the Lord's going to do things. And look how great I am. And I often lose sight of the fact that it's the Lord working in me. It's the Lord working in you. It's I want to see the Lord work. And I get so convinced that it's me and myself. And when I do that, I leave the life behind. I step into darkness. I, I, I love myself more than I love God. And I, I struggle with this all the time, and I don't like talking about it. It's, it's something I think pastors have to deal with because we're in front of crowds and all these different things. But I, I bring this up because I want to tell you, I, when I first realized that, I realized I had to confess it to a few people. I called a mentor. I talked to Brandon and Caleb, who we were writing the curriculum together. I talked to my wife, who said, yeah. Um, I, I talked to... Jess has the gift of discernment, and she sharpens me so much, and I love her. And so I have to say that because she's like, yeah, that sounds like what you've been doing for months. But I I confess these things outward. I talk to people about them because I know on my own I'm just going to step back into darkness. I'm going to step away from the life because I'd rather live life my own way. And that's what we want to do, right? We want to live life our own way. Um, I work with high schoolers, and high schoolers all say, well, there will be time to follow the Lord later. And I always want to slap them because they say, I want to live my life. I'll get to that eventually. And the reason I'm so sad for them and the reason my heart breaks so much for them is that they think there's another life out there besides the life offered in Christ. And so they pursue things that at their core are just death. And that's what we all do. It's what adults do. I I, I pick on high schoolers because they make it so easy and apparent and they're so naked about it that you can just talk about it very easily. 
So if we want to have Koinonia Fellowship, I want to tell you the most important thing you can do, and this is our small group plug. Um, In the small group curriculum, I wrote right in there, if you're trying to do this on your own, I think you're wasting your time. Don't spend five bucks to go do it alone. Um, And I'm proud of what I wrote. You, You can't do the book of 1 John alone. It just does not work. You need to find a group of believers where you can apply scripture, so where you can talk to them about what you're learning about and you can apply it together, where you can hold each other accountable and affirm each other when you live out scripture well. And holding each other accountable doesn't mean I'm going to tell everyone else in the group what they're doing wrong. It means, excuse me, I'm, I'm going to tell everybody in the group, here's what I'm struggling with. I'm, going to, I'm willing to confess those things. And we're going to talk about that a lot in this series because it's one of the most important things in our walk is our willingness to talk about our struggles. And if you don't talk about your struggles, here's the problem. If you don't do the accountability part, how on earth can anyone encourage you and say, hey, you're doing well? If no one knows what you struggle with, how can they tell you anything but like cheap, shallow compliments? Like, oh, you're doing good? I'm doing good too. Good job. Like that's, that's, it's just surface level. If we want a deep fellowship, we have to be willing to confess and to contribute our struggles. Just like we have to be willing to ask people to do the same and we have to participate in the group with them. We have a whole bunch of small groups with a whole bunch of space. If you're not in a group, I just encourage you Like, they start meeting this week. You got a little bit of time. And I don't do this because I want to see our small group numbers go up because, I mean, I would like to see that. But the reason I ask for this and the reason I want to challenge you all with this is because if you want to grow and want to transform, like, like you participate on Sunday morning by listening and by responding and different things. But, but it's not like we come at the end of the sermon and we all sit down and we talk through it. So if you were challenged by something today and you go home and never think about it again, what really changed? When I talk like this, I feel like I really diminish my job. But I I say it because it's important. Because we don't always want to do this. Because we'd rather just stay where we are. But we really, we'd rather just stay in death. The other thing we have to do is willingly leave the leaves behind. And that leave the leaves, um, I didn't want to hit it over the head too much throughout the sermon. But um, if if you read children's stories about the Garden of Eden that are willing to be a little bit more nudity-friendly. They always have leaves just floating, covering everything, right? Or they have, like, they have leaf grass Those of you who aren't parents are like, this is weird, but, um, but I want to tell you, my desire for all of you is that when that gardener resurrected, the one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one gets to the Father except through me, the one who says, if you believe in me, you pass from death into life, He invites us back into the garden and praise the Lord. In Revelation, it says we will wear white robes. We're not all going to be naked. Um, That's really there. Um, But but the leave the leaves idea and and what I want to kind of leave you with um, is, is you have to be willing to live in a community where people know your baggage and where people know you're good and where people know you're bad. You have to be willing to say, I'm going to live naked and unashamed with these people because I know that the... The love God has for me isn't going to change, and I know that this group can help me live more and more like Christ. You cannot live out your faith in a bubble, and so many try because it's easier than to ever do this. But this is the point. This is what we need to do. When Jesus sat with his disciples, when he washed their feet, when he broke bread with them, when he talked to them, when he called them friends, he knew they're good, he knew they're bad, he knew how fallen they were, and he loved them. 
And we're invited to be a part of a community where we do and follow that same example of Jesus. But to do that, we need to know about each other. We need to share with each other. We need to be willing to say, hey, I struggle with this and it doesn't go away. That's what life looks like. Life in John's writing is seen as living in God's creation, following his purposes for us, and being in right relationship with God and with each other. If we want to do this, it takes community. It takes confession. It takes looking at the God who is life and saying, I want to be a part of who he is. The whole book is built on this idea. We're going to see God is light, and we're going to talk about what it looks like to walk in light. We're going to see God is love and how through our love for each other, we show that we actually walk in the light, show that we actually love God. That's our next nine weeks. I'm really excited for it, and I want to challenge you as we close. Don't try and do this series alone. Dig in. And for those of you that are in small groups, look at your small group and say, I'm going to go three steps deeper than I would like to and do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the source of life. You are the author of all creation. And when you created, when we sinned, when humanity sinned and, and, and was cast away from you because of our sin, because we could no longer be in your perfection, we thank you that you made promises to restore our access to life. We thank you that in Jesus we saw life manifest. We saw you in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us that we could understand you and your promises, that we could live in right relationship with you and each other. And Lord, we pray we would be a church that does not wait until heaven to live in that fellowship we're allowed to have, but that we would do it now and in doing it, we would show each other love and we would show the world your light. We pray we would be a people who follow you well who live in that light now and live in that life now. I pray if anyone here does not know you, that they would not leave today without talking to me or one of our other pastors, that they would just refuse to just be in the darkness any longer. I pray that we would all turn towards your life. We would recognize that those who don't have you do not have life and that we would feel just an urgency to live in that life in such a way that others would be drawn to you. We thank you that you chose us that you provided us with life, and that because of the gift of your son, his death on the cross and his blood covering our sins, we can have access to you. And because of his resurrection, we know that you have power over death and we can spend our eternity with you. And we know that that life does not start when we die, but it starts here and now. And we pray we would live that out. It's in your name we pray. Amen.